Well, good morning to everyone here in person, those who are uh, with us but up in the fellowship hall and those who are with us online. Uh, welcome to all of us today. Palm Sunday, the first of our Holy Week in which we are focused and have our thoughts and our affections set on why Jesus came in this final week of his life on earth. And so if you have a Bible, please turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to spend today and Good Friday, Friday night at 7 p.m. here. Please participate in that with us. You will be able to do that um, signing up like you would for the normal worship service. You can sign up for that later this week. It's again at 7 p.m., and we hope to live stream that as well. Uh, we'll have a Good Friday service. And then again next Sunday for Easter Sunday, we're going to be moving through the Gospel of John. If you're turning there, and hopefully you're turning to Gospel of John chapter 12, we're going to read verses 12 through 19. <clears throat> John chapter 12, starting with verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the, this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. As we consider this week, this final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, and I pray that our hearts would find in the King who came, the King who came to save. That we would have hearts that would be fixed on him through faith, trusting in his life, death, and resurrection for our salvation that you would strengthen our weak and wobbly hearts, and that you would be with us even now as we consider this passage of Scripture together. So be with us, I pray, in the preaching, in the hearing, the receiving, the believing, trusting this, your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Holy Week runs the full emotional range the arrival of the king with great fanfare, the betrayal of the king with great desperation, the death of the king in the grave and the tomb, and then the resurrection of the king. What a week! What a week! And we get to consider the eternal significance of such a week. That this isn't just some compelling story but this is the greatest news for sinners and sufferers such as us. And so my hope is, as we consider here the triumphal entry of the king into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry that ends in death and resurrection, that it would draw our hearts to him through faith, finding in him life and hope and strength for our lives right now. 
That we don't just play church because this is where we are in the calendar and this is just what we do because we do this each year, but that we take this seriously. The King who came, came to die in order to save. To save a, us from our sin and our shame and our misery and our suffering and our pain and our death and our separation. He came to die to save. This is no light thing. Let's consider that together as we consider the triumphal entry as a call to behold the King. A call to behold the King through faith, understanding what was going on in this very moment. As we consider this call to behold the King, I want us to consider First of all, his pressures as he enters into Jerusalem at this time. There are so many pressures all around. It is a very volatile week and a volatile entrance. And as we consider those pressures, we're going to see very, a very significant and important thing, and that is his posture through this all. Both the pressures and his posture within them are all leading us to see that he arrived with a far grander purpose. So as we see the triumphal entry, as it's probably labeled in your Bible, the little heading above the paragraph that I just read, we see it in terms of pressure, posture, and purpose for us. And it will all be relevant, my hope and aim in preaching, <laughs> is that it will all be relevant to us right now. Right now. This isn't just some, some history book or some story that we're moved by, but that we find this to be relevant now. So let's consider first the pressures. There are pressures surrounding the triumphal entry of the king. And we find this in four groups of people that we read about in our passage. Four groups of people, all carrying with them all sorts of different pressures, all hived off of Jesus, his life, his ministry, and everything that was going on leading up to this point. And all of these pressures are bubbling upward. The, the, the temperature on the burner has been cranked to high with this entry first group of people we find are the large crowds. The large crowds. Look again at verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. A great crowd of people was filling Jerusalem in the surrounding region because this week was the Feast of Tabernacles leading up to the Passover, which was an incredibly important uh, feast and, and period of the calendar for the Jewish people. And so as they all convened into Jerusalem and its surrounding region, there are gobs and gobs of people pressing in. For those who have been with us for the Exodus series, we, we actually read the origin story of this whole thing. So we, we got the, the very beginning instructions of what this feast and the, this Passover was to be and why it was so significant. One Jewish historian named Josephus calculated at one point 
during this time period that the Passover week had roughly 2.7 million people. I don't know how you would have been able to figure any of that out other than just simply to say and stress that there are a whole bunch of people here. And they're all excited to be there. Have you ever gone to... uh, The closest thing that we would say is like a big sporting event. And people have been tailgating all day. Now, they weren't tailgating in the same way. (laughs) Hopefully not. But that energy, that buzz, that excitement, that hope, that anticipation, this crowd had a whole bunch of that. And we see what they do. Verse 13. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who, came, who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, given that the nature of these festivities was religious and cultural and traditional for the people, coupled with the buzz surrounding Jesus' fame, led this group of this large crowd to start singing a pilgrim song for Jesus. A song that was based off of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, that says this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's what Hosanna means. It literally just means save us. Save us. And with all of the buzz and all of the people and all of the anticipation of of one who would come and rescue the Israelites out of the oppression of their enemies, there was so much charged into that song. There was so much anticipation and hope fixed to this moment. Jesus' fame was, was moving out and around in the region. More and more people were wanting Jesus to be more and more of the Savior they were hoping for. And that hope was a hybrid of religious and cultural and national salvation. They were wanting to be their own people again. They didn't want Rome involved in their life, in their culture. They were expecting a deliverance from Rome. A a return to their traditional values. A re-emphasis of their religious practices. They wanted all of these things and and all of that was mixed into this like energy that was all surrounding Jesus as he is heading into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. That's the first dynamic of pressure. The second pressure is a different crowd. There was a following crowd. So there was the great and large crowd that were there for the feast. And Passover. And then there was a, a subset crowd within that that have been following Jesus very intently and, and with greater intensity because they were following from the time Jesus he brought Lazarus out of the tomb. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, get this, continued to bear witness. There was a crowd that was following intensely since Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. They did not stop talking about it, which, if you really put yourself in their shoes, is kind of understandable. 
Dead for days, then alive. Jesus said a word, and out he came. Yeah, I think I'd probably be talking about that too. And there was, so this following crowd that wouldn't stop talking about it, understandably, mixes with this great crowd that's got all sorts of anticipations and hopes and expectation. Mixing together, we find that this pressure was doubly mounting. In John chapter 11, we see Jesus restore Lazarus, and it sent everything on to a frenzy. Everything starts to amp up from that moment on in John's gospel account. In John 12, it's so crazy. So much is being said, and so much is spreading around, and so much is happening that, that the elites, if you will, the power structures that had the most to lose with this Jesus guy started to plot to kill Lazarus. Poor guy can't just be dead and raised again. He can't be left alone. He's got to die again? What? So much was building up and anticipating and expecting. There was a lot of expectations heaped at Jesus as he was entering Jerusalem. Quick note about crowds. In the gospel accounts, all four of them, crowds aren't held up as the model. They're not the thing to anticipate. Not only is this maybe important for pastors and ministry leaders, but also for all of us. Crowds are not the model of faith. They aren't bastions of faith. They're often there to see something amazing, I guess. But they're not necessarily there to follow Jesus with their whole lives. So what's going to happen to this crowd when Jesus doesn't meet their expectation? That's one of the that's the second pressure. You feel all this pressure? Jesus is doing amazing things, it's spreading, and it's kicking up a storm. Third group, the Pharisees. We see them enter in in verse 19, but they've been very, very upset all along. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after them. They've, they've broken down into hyperbole. They feel like everything that they've built and, and worked hard to have is threatened. Their whole political stability with Rome, the very thing that the Pharisees worked very hard to maintain, was being rocked by Jesus' presence and ministry. They were about to lose the crowd. Jesus was an ever-increasing threat to the Pharisees. Long game with Rome, and their hostility toward Jesus increased with it. So not only do you have a frenzy of a great crowd, the, the, the kerosene of this crowd that's been following since the days of Lazarus, but now you have a starter match in the Pharisee. All of this as he's entering into Jerusalem. The power structures of the Jewish people were threatened. The crowd was anticipating deliverance from Rome. Some people were there just because they wanted to see Jesus do something awesome. And then there's the fourth group. The disciples. Look at verse 16. His disciples 
did not understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Can you imagine his closest followers at this point? Confused, bewildered, probably caught up in the song and the crowd and the buzz, certainly have a wary eye on the opposition. They certainly saw the realness of that threat, and they were unaware of Jesus' ultimate mission that was about to unfold over the next few days. And they were the ones closest to him. They were the ones who had been seeing Jesus do these amazing things, and then, and then he would expound upon them later so that they would see like even greater spiritual truths that were going on underneath and around him, all that Jesus was doing. So here, his closest followers, bewildered at what was going on. Frenzy, crowd, and then a hype crowd, <laughs> an opposition crowd, and his closest followers, unsure what on earth is happening. Those pressures are important, don't overlook them. So what does he do in the midst of those pressures? What's his posture through this? Humble and lowly. Antithetical to the pressures surrounding him. The opposite of what you would have expected. He gets on a donkey's colt. Not a war horse preening for the crowd, soaking it up. A donkey's colt. Physically, could you get any lower and still ride a creature? <laughs> also, don't overlook its significance. Look again at verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. If Jesus wanted to lead an armed revolt against Roman occupation, all he would needed to have done in that very moment was say a word, and it was on. It would have been on. But his demeanor and posture was not that. It could have ignited a keg of revolt, but instead he went low, he went humble. Why? No, that's going to get into our third point, but first, before we do that, we need to understand what was being attributed to Jesus here. And that is, Jesus was fulfilling an Old Testament promise of God. He was not there to fulfill the various immediate pressures of a wide assortment of people. He was there to fulfill an old, long-standing promise that God had made. In your Bibles, in the middle of the Bible, there's a whole run of, of names some of those you don't know exactly how to say, and that's okay, but they're called the prophets. Some are big and have long and, and incredible chapters, and others are, are small, little compact ones. And one of those small, little compact ones that, that you maybe sometimes get to in your reading plan for the most discipline, you know, you're reading the Bible through the year, and, and if, you get through, if you get through Leviticus and Numbers, like you're like, yes, 
I'm going to get into some like his narratives and, and my attention will be kicked back in and, and then you sort of lose it a little bit and you're like, whoa, okay. But anyway, so I'm, I know, but there's in there, there's this little book called Zechariah. It's there, I promise. And in that chapter 9, verse 9, we have these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And if you were to look in that context of Zechariah chapter 9 and see sort of the broader things that God is promising in this moment, you find that he was promising a day when the war would be over. Again, this is a prophet and it's written to a time in which opposing nations were ransacking Israel and Judah and, and, and killing most and taking away some. And, and it was a terrible time of exile. And so the promise was that there would be a day in which the war would be no more. And as you keep reading in that context, you find that the king who would come, that would bring an end to that war, also comes bringing news of peace, good news of peace to the nations. And then you would find in that immediate context of Zechariah 9, that not only is the war over, not only is the king bringing good news of peace, but the blood would set the prisoners free. Jesus getting onto that donkey. Not a war horse, preening and proud, a donkey humble and low, because God promised the salvation. Those pressures and Jesus' posture did not align because there was a greater purpose that Christ was seeking to fulfill. His purpose, the king came to die in order to save. In the king's death comes salvation for sinners. Looking again at the beginning of verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, John is anticipating what is to come and he's looking down the corridors of the rest of that week, and he gives this little teaser that there would be a great unfolding of God's redemptive purposes being fulfilled in the course of this week, ending with Jesus being glorified. The triumphal entry was not a hinge unto a revolution, but a march unto death. And that death brought about the salvation of sin, sick, sinners, and sufferers. He went low in order to rescue those brought low by their sin and suffering. The king's plan was one of redemption. And it is fulfilled through his life, through his death, and his resurrection bringing an end to the war with sin, bringing the good news of the gospel of peace to the nations. And by his 
blood setting free prisoners. Jesus was humble and low because the purpose and promise of God was grand and glorious. But don't confuse humble and low as weakness. He was humble yet resolute. Lowly yet powerful. We see this and think through this and wrestle with this. All the expectations that people had with, with this Jesus. His posture that would have been antithetical to those expectations. Leading everyone to wrestle with a purpose that didn't make sense in the moment. How does that all hit us right now? Familiar story? Sure. But that's the king of glory that we sang about. And he came down into our humanity, into our world, into our brokenness, into our sin. And he took it all on in such a lowly, humble way because he knew he had a great and grand, glorious purpose to fulfill. Jesus, the king, succumbed to no pressure, took on a lowly posture, fulfilled a redemptive purpose. The king came all the way down into our lowliness. And this means something for us today. Right now, today. This very moment today. Whatever's going on in your life today. Not some other day, not some day down the road. I'll get around to maybe taking this seriously. No, this means something to us right this very moment. First of all, it means life to sinners. What does this mean? It means life to sinners. Sinners that are submerged in their sin, sunk down with shame, heart full of regrets, head full of rocks. Jesus showed up to save that sinner. He didn't preen. He didn't prance around. He came all the way down into the lowliness of humanity to its lowest level to save people there. At that level. Submerged with their sin. The King of glory left glory for our broken world. To save our broken lives. This means life for sinners, not death. Secondly, it means hope to sufferers. Hope to sufferers, weary with the presence of sin, weary with the brokenness of this world, weary with the hurts and the pain and the loss and the death that exists in our lives, weary that it seems like sometimes sin and evil and death are winning. What this means is hope for the sufferers. Jesus didn't bend to these pressures of people when he had a great purpose to fulfill a purpose to overcome our sin and shame and suffering 
in His lowliness. He reaches down to our lowliness in order to pick us up. This means life to sinners. It means hope to sufferers. And thirdly, it means strength for the pilgrim. For the one on the journey. The one who's not quite home yet, but yet anticipating that. The one who has been clinging to Jesus, but is weary, is longing for hope, is wanting life. It means strength for the pilgrim, living out a life of faith in the King, in the midst of a world that rejects His good news of peace. His humble yet resolute, His lowly yet powerful entry into Jerusalem is for us strength, even now. It is life to sinners, it is hope to sufferers, it is strength for the pilgrims on their way home. How do we handle this then? How do we respond to this? How do we look at this and, and see this more than just some sort of you know, Bible story we tell because that's where we're at in the calendar. Like, what, what else do we do? Well, as one of his disciples said earlier in the Gospel of John, we respond by saying, we have nowhere else to go. We have nowhere else to go. In John chapter 6, when a great crowd surrounded Jesus because he did something amazing, Jesus started to get real about who he is and what he came to do and why he means everything. He says, I'm the bread of life. You better eat me if you want to live. And as he started to teach about God's purpose and how he was fulfilling it, that great crowd who was wowed by his fish and his loaves dissipated, went home, expectation not met, missing. How incredible Jesus is and what he came to do. And his disciples, his closest disciples, the ones that are bewildered and confused upon his entry, sat around and Jesus asked them, hey, what are you guys, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Why aren't you leaving? And John 6, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I don't know how much you are suffering. I don't know how weary you are. I don't know how beat down you feel. I don't know how exhausted you are with your sin. I don't know how longing you feel for something, for hope, for life, for anything. I don't know how numb your head and your heart are. I don't know how many regrets rattle around in your heart or how many rocks rattle around in your head. But I can say to you with great confidence and great encouragement, You have no one else to go to. There's no other hope that we have. There's no other one who will fulfill all that we need for life and salvation. There is only one with words of eternal life. And that is the King who came to save. Would you now, even now, look to Him? Even now, 
Look to Him. Trust Him. The King who came to save, who entered into our lowliness all the way to the grave in order to bring us up and out of the pit of our sin, that King calls. You look and live. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would just bury it deep in our hearts and that it would spring forth life in our lives. May we find in Christ the King who saves. May our hopes and expectations of Jesus be what Jesus is, our King, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend. May we find great comfort in his humble yet resolute, lowly, yet powerful approach to this last week of his life, fulfilling for us a salvation we could never gain. God, may we have hearts that are alive, filled with hope and strength. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.